Hello and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 44 and this is the first of a two-parter on coronavirus and COVID-19. Now please note this was recorded on February the 20th and this is a fast evolving story. So some of the detail may already be outdated. So please keep an eye on the latest updates and we've put some links to sites with all the latest information in our show notes. But let's just jump right in. Okay, so welcome back to the Sumungos podcast. We're here to talk about a very topical subject, uh, the coronavirus. And, and quite aptly, or maybe ironically, we were supposed to record this a couple of days ago. And then we had to postpone it because there was a couple of potential cases in Glasgow, which uh, thankfully were negative or tested negatively. But it is a very uh, topical subject. So uh, we're absolutely delighted to have Dr. Alistair McConaughey, who's an infectious disease consultant in Glasgow, uh, to come and speak to us about it. So let's start with the basics. There's quite a bit to talk about, but what, what is coronavirus? So coronaviruses are a group of viruses which most people will most commonly know about is causing seasonal respiratory tract infection. So one of the whole group of viruses that can cause what we call the common cold and kind of those typical symptoms of coryza, cough, headache, fever. Um, so most coronaviruses will have originated in other mammals and shifted to humans. Bats probably contain the widest variety of coronaviruses. And in some ways... What we're seeing now is a natural phenomenon, if you like. This is transmission of a coronavirus from another mammal, most likely bats, um, to humans. And well, probably ultimately this will become one of our seasonal respiratory tract infection viruses. We've obviously been surrounded by coronavirus for a long time, but most of us have probably never really heard of it, but it, it has existed for a long time. But what 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 is the new um what, what is the new concern? What has happened recently that now we're suddenly quite panicky about it? I guess we've had several coronaviruses that have caused major issues. So probably the most famous one would be SARS. Um obviously huge outbreak in in China, throughout Southeast Asia, particularly Hong Kong, caused very severe disease, led to a lot of people requiring respiratory support and a lot of nosocomial infections, so a lot of infection of healthcare workers as a result. And that is probably the first time that coronaviruses truly came to prominence. More recently, some people might be aware of MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. It's another coronavirus. Um, obviously, isolated traditionally from the people in the Middle East, although there have been outbreaks elsewhere in the world. Um, it doesn't cause an illness as severe as as SARS, but but is clearly transmissible and, and represents one of the things we think about in returning travellers. So I guess the current COVID-19 um, outbreak just represents another one of these events, if you like, of the coronavirus. It's, uh, and it's kind of the spillover from from animals to, to humans. So what is it about our, our behaviour or what is it about Southeast Asia and China that this is where these are, are originating? Well, it's difficult to know. It, it's undoubtedly to do with humans and how they interact and how they kind of, the proximity with which they live with animals that that carry these viruses. And, it, and it's obviously not just Southeast Asia, MERS in the Middle East, almost certainly originating in camels and therefore, you know, 
camel husbandry and, and interaction with camels is probably how that has jumped to humans. I think the issue with the, the COVID-19 is that it is, we know that this has almost certainly come from bats. It seems to have to have been originally centred around a cluster of cases in the seafood market in, in Wuhan. Um, what nobody is sure about is whether it's gone from bats through, traditionally through a, a kind of intermediate alternative mammal. So in SARS, for example, it was civet cats. We, we don't know what the, the intermediary is, if it exists Um for COVID, there's been suggestion of some other mammals, even snakes have been mentioned as a potential intermediary host. But if you, if you certainly if you look at pictures from that market, it's it's not just seafood. You know, you can buy a lot of different animals um, that people will eat and people will butcher and you know potentially expose themselves. So just very simply to to to, to try and determine the source, what, what will they just test all the animals that are available in that market? Will those that have the the most closely related kind of virus present? Is that likely how they work out? I suspect that work is ongoing. Um, how successful it will be, I don't know. They did it for SARS. They identified the civet cat and then embarked upon a quite a substantial kind of um, kind of public health measures to reduce civet cat numbers to try and control. Uh, control the virus, whether that is ultimately what led to SARS being controlled or not, I think is unknown. Um, I'm sure that work is ongoing, but I've not seen anything that's identified anything yet. And what's the main difference between coronavirus and influenza virus? So we're all familiar with influenza. It kills as well. Uh, so what is the difference both kind of, I guess, pathophysiologically? Why are we seemingly a little bit more worried about, about this virus over flu? There's an issue of perspective. I think flu, influenza is a horrendous illness. We all, when we work, we see people with severe flu. We see people die of severe flu every year. But there's a familiarity with flu. I think people see it every year. And, you know, you can look at example, the concern that's happened around COVID and then the difficulties that we have in actually getting people to engage, for example, an influenza vaccine every year because of their perception of the illness and their perception of the vaccine. So I think the familiarity with flu probably lends an element of complacency amongst the public, if you like, and with regard to it, it's a severe illness. As an infectious diseases doctor, I see a lot of severe flu every year, people ventilated with flu, people getting significant illness with flu, people dying of flu, um, and we see that every year. So we see that as a severe illness. I think the issue with this is we don't really know what we're facing into the future. There are a lot of projections and a lot of thoughts. This is probably more infectious than flu. Uh, this virus probably has what they call an R0, so a reproductive value of about 2.5 to 3, so for every one case you'll get about 2.5 cases. That's higher than flu, so it's more infectious. Um, whether it causes the same level of severity in terms of disease, I think it can. We know a lot about the severe end of the, of the spectrum in terms of its illness. I'm sure we'll come on to that later on, but um, I think what we don't know is as much about the more milder end of the illness, which makes it difficult to look at the severe end in that context. So I think that that is probably what causes a lot of the concern. Okay, so let's just start with 
the basic pathophysiology. What, what is a normal kind of disease process with coronavirus? So coronaviruses in general cause an upper respiratory infection. So chorizal symptoms, runny nose, headache, fever, bit of cough, often dry cough. And that's what most people are familiar with every year. And there'd be no discriminating features between that and typical flu? Yeah, so it'd be different with flu. I think the, the key thing with flu is that you really get those kind of myalgias and very high fever. And flu is probably more likely, if you like, to cause infection below the level of the carina, causing pneumonitis. Um, we know that there's an association with secondary bacterial pneumonia. We know that you become viremic with flu and you can have a whole variety of different manifestations of flu. So coronaviruses, as we traditionally know them, don't tend to cause that as much. They will cause more of a kind of cough and what have you. And some people will become unwell with them every year. We see that in people who, particularly people with cardiorespiratory illnesses, we're all familiar with people with COPD being admitted with exacerbations of that. And, you know, coronavirus in that context would not be uncommon. The issue with COVID-19 is that we know a lot about the severe end of the illness. And, and it clearly can cause really quite severe disease. Fever would seem to be the most common symptom. So well over 90% of people will have fever at presentation. Bearing in mind these are cohorts of people admitted to hospital in Wuhan and in Beijing. So this is the severe end of the spectrum. So fever seems to be relatively ubiquitous. Cough is variable. So somewhere between 50 to 60% of people will present with cough at presentation and then you have a host of other stuff um myalgias gastrointestinal upset diarrhea and vomiting and um, things that you often see in the context of viral infection but fever and cough probably the most common symptoms and who generally what what do we know so far so who who generally gets the more severe end of, of the disease process do we know that so we know what's published um so there are two sizable case series published um and we know that the the kind of median age of people admitted to hospital is in their 40s in both of these cohorts we know that certainly young people can get severe illness with it is a that is good description of bilateral infiltrates and chest x-ray in young people gas exchange problems a lot of people have cts which have shown ground glass changes indeed the chinese have recently changed their case definition in the context of their outbreak that if you've got a ct with ground glass changes that diagnoses you um and we know that young people can get significant gas exchange problems and a sizable proportion of them have required ventilation however the people that appear to die from it tend to be older people with underlying cardiorespiratory illness, hypertension, renal disease, the kind of typical people that we see dying from seasonal, you know, respiratory viral infections every year. But clearly in the context of the numbers that they have seen in this outbreak in China, then those numbers go up as well. And then, of course, the two most famous deaths have probably been people not in that demographic, the two doctors in China, who you would think are probably young, healthy, surrounded by disease all the time. They must have a decent immune system, yet they've died. Has that thrown up any concerns or worries, or or is there a worry that if you're exposed lots and lots and lots to it, that it can lead to a more severe illness, or, or is that just... 
unfortunate? Or I, I think I think the issue here is one of perspective. We we know what we know, but what we don't know is is huge. We're assuming both these doctors were in good health. I think one of them has actually been reported to dying of a myocardial infarction rather than respiratory failure. Um, how much of that's true, how much is attributable, I think is really difficult to know. Anything we're learning from this new cohort from the the large passenger ferry? I think there's been 600 cases and presumably there's a mix of different, you know, healthier people and anything we know yet from that group of people? Not that I've seen. I think the most striking thing about about that um, about that uh, cruise liner is how just how infectious this is. I mean, it's clearly gone through that through the population on that cruise liner pretty rapidly and, and quite impressively. So I think it underlines the, the kind of infectiousness um, of, the, of the virus. I know a lot of people have been moved to hospitals. I've not seen any data yet in terms of numbers needing ventilation. I believe there were two deaths reported today. I think that's the first two deaths from that, from that cruise liner. I think they were older as well. Yeah, um, that's certainly the suggestion, but I only know what I've kind of read in the popular media so far. Okay, so we'll just, if you don't mind, we'll talk about how we should manage or advice or on uh, the management of, of coronavirus or suspected cases. So let's start with the community. So obviously there's been a little bit of hysteria. You know, it started with if there was contact with people from Wuhan, but it's obviously spread. So there are there is potential to... to, to you know, to, to get the disease from people travelling in different parts of the world. What would your advice generally be to someone in the community who develops a flu right now? So I think unless someone has travelled to a part of the world that has sustained community transmission of the virus, i.e. have high enough numbers, and if someone has not travelled to that part of the world and they develop a, a respiratory illness, then I wouldn't worry about this as a cause of your illness. The other thing that people worry about is, well, I've been in contact with people who may have been to that part of the world. Um, I think unless you have been in contact with someone who's a known case or a proven case, then I wouldn't worry about it. Currently, we do not have person-to-person -person spread within the UK and, and all the cases that have been identified have clearly been isolated in the hospital and, and managed um, in a way to, to reduce risk to the general population. So typical advice, stay at home, symptomatic relief, yeah. but if you're struggling, more breathless, yeah. then seek so medical advice. Breathlessness would be a reason to seek medical advice. Yeah. Okay, and what would that advice be? Phone NHS 24 if you're in the UK? Yeah, NHS 24, go to your GP, I'm just going to pause the interview for a quick moment just to say that Dr. McConaughey actually meant for patients to phone their GP and not just to go to their GP. Depending on severity of, of your illness. Um, and this is someone who, who really doesn't fit the current UK de case definition yeah. um, of, a, of a possible case. If someone has some risk factors, has returned or been in close proximity with someone, what would the advice be then? So the, the current case definition as we have in the UK is extremely broad. So I would suggest that it's likely to pick up cases very easily, but the risk of that is that you make a lot of people concerned um, because it's such a broad case definition. So the current case definition in the UK is anyone who's returned within the last 14 days 
from mainland China, Hong Kong, Macau, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, eh, Malaysia, that anyone who develops a respiratory illness within 14 days of return from these parts of the world phones NHS 111 and has a discussion with them where there will be then be a discussion about whether that person needs to come up and be assessed, in which case they'll be coming to someone like me who has to wear the full PPE to see them and assess them, or whether they're actually well enough to stay at home and, and be and be tested in the community. And the reason there's such a, a broad case, case definition in the UK is because the UK is currently at a state where they're trying to identify as many cases as possible so that those individuals can be identified and isolated to prevent spread person to person within the UK population. And that is designed to try and prevent, but probably more likely put off the kind of sustained transmission within the within the community for a period of time. Um, there's, there's clearly downsides to that, which are the, the kind of stresses that it puts on healthcare services, but that that is the way that that we have approached it in the UK and, and I understand something similar to other countries um, in Europe. And can you tell me a wee bit more about the home testing? Because I know that's something you've been particularly involved in. I've not really been involved in the home testing. The, the home testing, certainly in Glasgow, has been carried out by colleagues in public health. Um, we we kind of set up a, a kind of ambulatory testing facility that allowed people to come up and be tested without being admitted. Um, that has now evolved into a kind of home testing just because of sheer numbers um, of people that that require testing. So so currently we have public health um, teams going out to people's homes and testing them. The way we test for this is a, is a throat swab and a nose swab and a sputum if you can get it. And we know that those tests are very sensitive. And how long does it take for a result? So now testing in Scotland, so testing in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Uh, so you'll have a result. Depends when you get it into the lab. If you if you get your sample to the lab first thing in the morning, you'll have a result later on that day. Um, usually about five or six in the evening. If people are getting uh, onto the run first thing in the morning, we're getting results back kind of middle of the day, early afternoon. And I don't know if this has happened very often, but what happens with a positive test or what should happen if a patient is well, let's say? Is it home isolation? So uh, we've not had a positive case in Scotland yet, but the current UK chief medical officer um, guidance is that, is that these people are admitted to hospital for isolation and management. Let's think about the hospitals. So I presume the same advice would apply if someone presents to A&E and they're not a high-risk patient, but they've got a flu, we treat it the same. Find out, have they any risk factors? If they don't, we treat it similarly. Home, if they're able to go home, or admit if they're if they're unwell, is that fair? But they don't need isolation, or we shouldn't feel the need for isolation unless there's clear risk. Is that fair? Yeah, I think if someone fits the case definition as it stands at the minute, they need to be managed as a possible case. If they don't fit that case definition, then I don't think that needs to happen. Can you talk us through just the real basics? What would you do if you were working in A&E and you get a call through from reception, someone fits the definition, they've got a flu, how would you take it through right to the... So the first thing for me as a doctor who looks after high consequence infectious disease is 
don't forget there's a patient who's not well and it's it's very easy i find myself fighting against doing this it's very easy to allow your concern as a doctor but as a human being your concern about contagion potentially reduce the the kind of level of care that you give to that patient and that that is really what we need to try and prevent for two reasons one there's clearly a patient who's there who needs looked after and secondly there's actually probably a better chance that that patient doesn't have what you're worried about but has something else and we see this all the time particularly in febrile travelers from parts of the world where people worry about more exotic diseases so the first thing is don't don't forget there's a patient there that needs to be managed and 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 do that i think if someone fits the case definition and they have presented themselves to a e for example then that patient needs to be looked after in a physical facility that allows you to do that safely ideally that would be a negative pressure room with a lobby and all the rest of it but you're not going to have many of them in most emergency departments and therefore a single room would have to fit the bill at that point you use what you've got staff who are interacting with the patient will need to wear personal protective equipment currently the advice for that is an ffp3 level face mask um eye cover kind of face cover on top of that uh full length full arm water repellent gown and uh, and gloves and that is sufficient we know that this virus is spread probably from respiratory droplets, which is different from aerosolization. So when the patient coughs, they cough up a big glob of kind of respiratory secretions that will contain the virus. And you'll catch it from, uh, probably from fomite spread to hard surfaces. So that personal protective equipment will be effective at protecting you from that. You can put a face mask on the patient. We know that putting a fluid repellent surgical mask onto the patient significantly reduces the environmental exposure from them as well but as ever with personal protective equipment it's it has to be a balance between doing enough to protect yourself and protect your colleagues but enough that allows you to actually look after the patient as well and you know as someone who's worn the full spectrum of personal protective equipment for a variety of high consequence infectious diseases you, you really come to appreciate how wearing Really, the full PPE decreases your ability to to assess and look after patients, and that's a that's a difficult balance. And what what would your recommendations be about minimising general contact with a patient? I presume it should be the same group of of staff who continue to take care of that patient. Yeah, so we we would always try and kind of keep those looking after the patient to to a bare minimum. We always keep a record of who's gone into every room, so we always stick a bit blank bit of A four on the door, and everybody goes in and out signs it, puts their name up to say how long they were in for. It's good to know kind of as you go uh, what staff have have interacted with. And anything about removing PPE and, and discarding PPE, where you do that? Do you do it in the room, outside the room and how you get rid so, of them? So it depends what you've got. Ideally, you would have a negative pressure room with a lobby area and you would leave the room and your PPE into the lobby area. You would um, doff your PPE usually by taking the, the most contaminated elements off first. So the, the gloves, we tend to use alcohol gel onto your gloves, let that dry, remove your gloves, alcohol gel onto your hands. Um, next contaminated thing is going to be your, your, your gown. So that comes off 
alcohol gel onto your hands, then your face mask, uh, that your sorry your your visor, sorry, uh, that comes off alcohol gel onto your hands, then your face mask, alcohol gel onto your hands, wash your hands with soap and water. That's that's the way we would doff, and and that is not as strict and prescribed as, for example, the way that we would doff if we were looking after a patient with a viral hemorrhagic fever, which is a much more involved body system way of doffing, which has to be very careful. But that's because we're protecting against body fluids as opposed to coronavirus, which is a, a kind of aerosol spread type organism. So we don't have a negative press room, and I'm sure most A&Es, I'd, I'd like to know if there's a and, any A&Es in, in Britain that have negative pressure. Maybe they do. I suspect there won't be. Um, so so just, just to keep into the real basics for us, um, what, what, what would you do differently? Do, do you doff in the room with the patient before you leave the room, or, or what, what, what would you advise? So current guidance is that if you're more than two metres away from the patient, you're probably not, not going to be hugely exposed so what we would traditionally do and we do do this out with the context of of a negative pressure facility so we have used non-negative pressure rooms um and what we would do is kind of doff all of our move away from the patient doff all of our um personal protective equipment as i described previously but leave the mask on leave your face mask on leave the room more alcohol gel in your hands then take your face mask off and then wash your hands so there are ways of doing it. And and that, that's consistent with the current UK guidance, which is use a negative pressure room if you've got it. If you don't, a single room with an ensuite toilet is what it says to manage these patients and, and kind of doffing in that way. So many, many thanks to Dr McConaughey and you'll hear more from him in part two. I think my main take-home points today are number one, coronavirus has been around for a long time and typically causes a mild upper respiratory illness such as the common cold. But in the past 20 years, there have been three lethal new strains and they are SARS, MERS and now the new COVID-19. Number two is why the concern, well, influenza arguably is still a much more deadly and concerning disease. But the new coronavirus appears to spread more easily. We are unfamiliar with it and therefore it is unpredictable and we don't have any treatments or vaccines for it yet. Number three, the commonest presenting symptoms are fever in over 90% of cases, cough in 50 to 60% of cases and others include myalgia and gastrointestinal upset. Number four, in terms of management, it's important to remember that most cases will be mild. If a patient has not travelled to a high-risk area or not been exposed to a positive case, then do not consider it as an option. If the patient has risk and has respiratory illness, then phone NHS 111 and an arrangement will be made to test, either in hospital or at home. The current advice is if a patient tests positive, despite how well or unwell they are, they should be isolated in hospital. If a patient presents to hospital and doesn't fit the definition, then they should go home. If they do have risk factors and they are a possible cause, then they should be isolated in a side room, ideally with an ensuite if possible. Staff looking after them need to have PPE, which currently includes FFP3 level mask, eye and face cover, full length water repellent gown and gloves. Put a face mask on the patient and keep the same staff looking after them. And finally, number five, when removing PPE, you can do this in the room with the patient if you're over two metres away. 
Firstly, you put alcohol gel on your gloves and let it dry and then remove your gloves. And then clean your hands again with alcohol gel and let it dry and then remove the gown. Clean your hands again with alcohol gel and then remove the visor. Clean your hands again. Exit the room with the face mask on. Clean your hands again once more with alcohol gel. Remove the face mask and then clean your hands with soap and water. So many, many thanks to you for listening. Many thanks to Dr. McConaughey. Please visit samungos-ed.com for the show notes plus other additional resources for your enjoyment. And until next time, take care.